In this episode, once again, we speak to the amazing Jonathan Blue. Jonathan is the founder and the CEO of Fusion Family Wealth, a Long Island-based fee-only registered investment advisory firm. His investment philosophy is centered on helping shape positive money behavior and by teaching wealthy people to consistently make rational financial decisions under uncertainty. Jonathan and his team at Fusion Family Wealth oversee approximately $1.1 billion in assets under advisement and management. He believes the investor temperament, what one does, as opposed to intellect, what one knows, is the dominant variable determining investor um, determining investor success or failure. As such, Jonathan approaches fo- approach focuses pri- predominantly on conditioning investors to learn to ignore current events and always act on their plan and never react to the markets and media. And today we're speaking to Jonathan about why entrepreneurs tend to make poor investors. Let's find out. And remember, if you want to upgrade your money mindset, then click on the link www.millionairefoundations.com and watch my free training. Money Mindset with Girl Khan podcast will help you to break free from your limiting beliefs, reverse your money shame and blast through your money blocks so that you can live a life of unlimited abundance. In this podcast, we will talk about energy tools and mindset strategies that will help you to understand and change your relationship with money, whether you're in a job, profession, or working on your passion. Change your relationship with money to change your life. I'm your host, Gul Khan. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome. This is Girl Khan, your money mindset expert. And once again, we have the amazing, we have the wonderful Jonathan Blau. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Go. Again, a pleasure to be here as a guest on your podcast. Thank you so much for coming back, Jonathan. We had such a fantastic conversation on Friday Feature. We have to continue that today. Um, so we had to have you back. And Jonathan, once again, everyone's heard your intro. They know how fabulous you are. But please, in your own words, tell everybody what it is that you do. Sure. Okay. Thank you. What we what we do is we help uh, we help people who have uh, the responsibility of managing wealth to learn how to make rational money decisions when they're faced with uncertainty, and, and uh, we do that by helping them address the many biases that are built into us uh, as as human nature has it um, that drive poor decision making, and then we based on that help them modify their behaviors so that their outcomes uh, have a higher probability of su- uh, being successful. Wonderful. So that leads us on today's uh, episode, which is why entrepreneurs can be poor investors. Now, this really hit home the title for myself because I'm a fabulous, I would even if I do so myself, I'm a fabulous entrepreneur. I have multiple businesses and I have successes and failures, of course, all, to that, all of them. But as an investor, oh my God, <laughs> I can be a really rubbish investor. So that's why I thought that's a perfect, perfect uh, title for, for today's episode because a lot of the people listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. So tell us, Jonathan, why have you singled out entrepreneurs who, not all entrepreneurs, but vast majority of them, myself included, have a tendency to become poor investors, even though we're quite intelligent and are very successful with running businesses? 
So that's a that's a great uh, segue, but uh, because I am also an entrepreneur, as, as you are, and I'm prone to the same mistakes. So even though I can help people, uh, it's often often the cobbler's uh, kids have no shoes. Um, I've been prone to make a few mistakes financially myself over the years because I I don't have the benefit of myself advising me. But, exactly. Yeah. Against them. But yes. To, so entrepreneurs, uh, the 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 way we got rich as entrepreneurs um, doesn't give us the skill set to stay and get rich as investors. Mm. And, and in fact. Oftentimes, uh, for example, an entrepreneur uh, usually it needs as a, as one of their uh, skills the ability to not be afraid of taking risks and big risks and concentrated risks and doing them again and again um, and and looking to uh, build up the value of whatever we're trying to create quickly and then replicate it, mm-hmm. believing that we can replicate it because we did it the first time. Um, when it comes to investing for the long term, uh, the skill set that someone needs is patience and and discipline, the ability to uh, to, to diversify and accept that uh, the goal is not to find what is going to be the best returning thing I can put my money into over the next two or three years, but what will be the thing that I can invest in with an average return that I can stay with for the longest period. That's compounding. And that's what's important with investing. So I always like to say investing is compounding is taking my return seven or eight percent to the power of time. So time should be doing all the heavy lifting, not figuring out what I can do the most with for the next two or three years. And in fact, if someone said to me, what's an entrepreneur or anybody, what's the what are the most important things I can do, Jonathan, if I wanted to increase my chances of maximizing the wealth I've made for my business as an investor? Mm -hmm. I'd say two things. One is save as much as early as possible toward that goal. And two is, and this is more important, extend your time horizon. (laughs) Those are the two things. That's not what most people would expect to hear. Most Mm -hmm. people expect to hear you've got to get educated and read all kinds of investment books and and, uh, find uh, the economists who could forecast the economy consistently so you'll know when to get in and out of of, of the markets and so forth. Those those are the things that that, uh, kill investing success, not not lead to uh, lead to it. I mean, everything you just said really came home for me because, yeah, I think the I think this is a conversation we had off camera is. The, the the skills that make you a great entrepreneur, which is your ability to um your appetite for risk, your appetite for um, you know, seeing through the fog and you know, being overly optimistic. I think you have to be overly optimistic to be a successful entrepreneur. You have to see things that other people cannot see. And these skills help you as an entrepreneur because you have to have the faith you're a leader, especially if you have your own business, you are okay. the leader, people have to follow you and they that you have to have that faith. And but when that seeps into investments and you're you have this overly positive uh, expectation from an investment that may not come to um, fruition as i've found many times (laughs) the wrong way it went the wrong way um i wasn't expecting it i was like no this is a guaranteed thing this is a guaranteed returns there's guaranteed returns there there is no there you know there is no possibility of loss and i remember saying that and you know within a couple of months it was just shambles so that's right 
So, so what, what happened to you yeah. is what happens to a lot of us entrepreneurs. We become, as a result of our success as entrepreneurs, overconfident. Yeah. We have what's called over. That's one of the biases, overconfidence bias. So as entrepreneurs, we're human beings like everybody else. We have all of the many biases. I may discuss a few with you as we go on into the podcast. Mm-hmm. But all of those biases we all have, the entrepreneur then has this big magnifying glass called overconfidence yeah. that makes those biases even more harmful to the entrepreneur than to everybody else. Yeah. And, and so I, I like to say the entrepreneur tends to not only um, need this kind of counseling from me or somebody, yeah. but but they need it usually more than others because they make the same mistakes as, as the rest of us, but with a lot more confidence and a boatload more money. <laughs> and so they'll benefit more from this advice than most others. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. You do it a lot more quickly and a lot more with a lot more money. <laughs> so you lose both things. With That's your time right. Anyway. So, yeah. So let's talk about the biases then. So what kind of biases do people have when they come to you with this large pot of money? So, so typically all of us, um, tend to have what's called loss aversion bias. Mm-hmm. So there was there was an economist, uh, Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize for showing that the pain of a loss to us, financially or otherwise, mm-hmm. is felt two times greater than is the pleasure of a gain felt pleasurable. Mm-hmm. pleasurable. So because of that, we're much more sensitive to losses. Then when you factor into that, another thing that I've learned is we're much more sensitive in general to changes in the value of what we own than into the absolute level of wealth that we have or the value itself. So changes are much more important. So when you factor in our fear of loss with our adversity to seeing things change, that leads us to make very poor decisions for the long term, Mm -hmm. which is we need to invest in things that can grow our wealth past inflation, well past inflation, which is investing as owners, generally in companies, as we call stocks. And and most of us, though, because of those two biases, loss aversion and the the sensitivity to changes in, in the value, we tend to want to invest in things that minimize short term loss and short term fluctuation, which are things like bonds. Those are also the things that minimize the ability to grow our wealth past inflation to protect the purchasing power of all our dollars. And so we need to reconcile those two um, beliefs. And so one of the things I'll talk about Cole, is um, we have, as it relates to that, a flawed system of, of beliefs and behaviors mm-hmm. that lead to, to some of these biases. So one of the beliefs in our belief system is um, if I held up a hundred dollar bill and and I asked an audience, as I do this for accounting firms, as continuing education, in one word, what do I hold up? 99% of them will say money. Hmm. The problem is it's not money. It's a currency unit. It's, it's probably a peerless medium of exchange mm-hmm. so that if I sell oranges for a living, I don't have to go to the Tesla dealer and say, how many oranges do you need for the Tesla? That 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 currency unit, the $100 bill, and a number of them will get that exchange accomplished yep. much more easily and and uniformly. So now by not understanding that that's a currency unit and not money, I, I define money as purchasing power. Yeah. Currency doesn't store value. Yeah. As investors, entrepreneurs and otherwise, we actually think as long as I perfectly preserve this 50 million that I just sold my business for, that's the most important thing. I can't afford to lose any of it. And 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 in 30 years, if they still have just the 50 million because they kept rolling it over in a bond and it never went past 50 million. Granted, they got interest every year, but the, the principal was frozen. Hmm. Now it's only worth about 45 million. And so they've lost, but in the safest way possible, because it didn't fluctuate, over half of their purchasing power or what I call money. So the first flawed belief is that money and currency are the same thing. 
And that's that that means that we think if we just preserve our dollars, the currency, that we preserved our money, our purchasing power. We haven't. The second flawed flawed belief is that risk means volatility. Yeah. So that risk and safety should be measured in terms of protecting the number of dollars we have from fluctuating instead of what it really needs to do is protect the purchasing power or the value of each dollar from eroding right to inflation. Yep. And yep. so by having those two flawed beliefs, we take advice from an industry, general advice that tells us to protect the money from fluctuating. That's our big risk. And as we get older, we should really protect those fluctuations more. Even more, more so, yeah. yeah. So right? the older you are, the, the, the less risk you should take. Yes, that's, that's what i in I've fact, heard. what they're doing is they're pouring on every one of us more risk by telling yeah. us to avoid what I call the fake risk, which is volatility. The real risk is the erosion of purchasing power more and yeah. more as you get older. And when yeah. we retire today in their 60s, joint life expectancy is close to 30 years. It's yeah. even more of a, of a... So the cancer of money is inflation. Mm. People think that the cure is bonds. Bonds are the carrier. <laughs> Stocks are the cure. So, mm. so that's the first two things, those two, two beliefs. Money and currency are different and risk and safety need to be measured, not in terms of volatility and protecting principle, but protecting purchasing power. The, then there's flawed behaviors. So there's three behaviors. One is actually physical, which you're you're familiar with. It's the amygdala or the fear sensor, these two walnut-shaped organs at the bottom of our brain hmm. designed to protect us from life and death threats. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, they don't know the difference between a life and death threat and the stock market going down 30%. So the bells go off and all of a sudden we're doing the opposite human nature-wise what we need to do. We're selling when we should be buying yep. more. Or holding the course. The second thing it's discounts. Is, it's I always say, I mean, when I see when things go down, I'm like, oh, look, things are on discount. You've got 30% off. Right? Yeah, they're on sale. So, so that's a good lead into one of this the second, the second um flawed behaviors that we have. And this one always fascinates me. It's it, it's it's I call it cultural. So we're generally um when it comes to responding economically to opportunities, we're generally behaving in a way that's called counter cyclically. Mm -hmm. So meaning our demand is counter to the price. We're attracted, our demand goes up when prices fall, go on sale, and our demand goes down when prices rise. We're, we're repelled by higher prices, attracted to lower prices. Mm -hmm. We behave that way with almost every financial and economic input except one, the price of stocks. When mm -hmm. the price of stocks is high and rising like it was in the late 90s. Uh, it's the you, FOMO. You want, you want more. Oh, no, no, that's I, right. Yeah. Human nature somehow thought the risk of buying at these higher prices is declining. And my claim on these companies' future earnings and assets at these higher prices are going to yield me a higher return. Mm -hmm. And when prices of companies are falling, human nature thinks that the value, the long-term enduring value has also fallen and that the risk of buying at these lower prices has increased and the claim on the future assets and earnings uh, by paying lower prices somehow going to be lower. Mm. And so what I teach people is reality isn't different than what human nature thinks. It's the opposite. So so that's the economic conundrum, right, that we all and we can all relate to that because it is we if we're all honest, we could say, yeah, when I invest, I don't behave the mm. way I do economically with everything else. Right. So imagine if there were with tuna fish was on sale in your local supermarket. Normally it's three cans for five dollars. And then next week, you go in and it says manager special, three cans for ten dollars. 
we don't say, oh, I better buy the, the heck out of this stuff because it looks like there's a bull market in tuna. <laughs> we don't do that. We don't, we don't load up the truck, right? So, so, but that's how we behave with investing. And then the second, the second part, so we did the physical, which is the amygdala, physical response yeah. and control. We did the economic. The second is, is the, the uh, emotional or psychological. So when we talked about already loss aversion bias, the yeah. pain of a loss, but there's something else. So think about this. I had a client that came in a number of years ago whose grandfather left him an inheritance. And uh, he was 52, the person, and he was the only inheritor. And it was $5 million, and it was all in one company. It was Merck, the, the American drug company, Merck stock. And it was $5 million. So the person said to me, my lawyer referred me to you. Can you help me with a plan? And so we talked about a plan, and he wanted to buy a home. So we said, okay, of the five million, you can take six hundred thousand and buy the home and stay within your budget that you want to spend two hundred a year and never run out of money. And so he said, okay, great. What are the next steps? So next step is we have to sell the Merck stock. He pushed his seat back. So what do you mean sell the Merck stock? So we had two problems. One is something called regret aversion. It's very powerful. Mm -hmm. When we when we have the fear that a decision will make will lead to regret, we 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 go to status quo bias. Just leave it the way it is, so I can't yeah. regret it. So he said to his mind, I'm just leaving the Merck. What if I do something? My grandfather and the grandfather bought Merck because he was a pharmacist and, and we have familiarity bias. We like to buy things and invest in things we know, irrationally thinking they'll help us more and hurt us less. Yeah. No. In this case, luckily, the grandfather's portfolio didn't blow up because of that. Mm -hmm. So now the second part of this, aside from regret aversion, causing him to want to keep the Merck was much more fascinating. Something called the endowment bias. We actually value things that we own and could lose differently than the same exact thing that we have the opportunity to gain. So the best example I give is a home. We all have homes, right? Everyone yeah. kind of owns a home. So if I said, if, 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 if you said you had a home and let's say it's worth a million dollars and you were looking to sell it. And the the um, the the agent from the from the um, home agency that you're looking to hire tells you comparable sales in the neighborhood are a million two to a million three. How much would you ask for that house if you put it up for sale? I guess something along the line, one million two, a million three, yeah. Right. If you were bidding on the house, how much would you bid? I, I will try to get to for the lowest price possible. Right. So you just valued the same asset. This works in everything differently than whether you owned it versus you had the opportunity to buy it. And it, and that's what he was doing. So the way you break through it, as I said to him, if grandpa left you five million in cash instead of Merck stock. Mm -hmm. And at the end of our meeting, when you questioned me as to what are the next steps, I said, we're going out in the morning and we're putting all this five million in Merck stock. What would you say? Mm -hmm. He said, I'd push back and run out of your office. I said, but that's what you're looking to do by telling me you want to hold the Merck stock. Right. Same decision. So we broke through it by understanding he had the endowment bias and how to address it. And so so that's just a couple of examples of some of the psychological biases that we all have. So the entrepreneurs have these same biases. But mm -hmm. again, they're magnified because right. of overconfidence. Overconfidence is funny. If you asked a room full of drivers, how many of you um, consider yourself above average? Almost everyone's going to raise their hand. But by definition, only half of them. It can be above average drivers, yeah. and and it will work the same way with a room of entrepreneurs. They're all they're all you know better than average business people, and 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 investors if you ask them and so forth. I hope you are enjoying today's episode. If you want to learn more about my mindset strategies and energy tools to help you change your money mindset, then please register for my Abundance Mindset Makeover Workshop by visiting www.abundance.com mindsetmakeover.com. See you inside the workshop.
I think that I think that that's a fair comment to make because we all have this idea that if you don't believe in it as an entrepreneur, if you don't believe in yourself, you cannot succeed. It's simple as that because no one can see your vision until it comes to fruition. So you have to have this vision. You have to have this belief in yourself. And only once it becomes a reality that people can see it. And then, then they start, you know, forming, you know, coming behind you and they say, oh, congratulations. Or, you know, they give you all sorts of stuff. Without it, people look upon you as, as a mad person. I know myself, you know, I, within, within my circle, within my family, I'm, I'm the I'm the weird one. I'm the clown. I'm the one who's got all these funny ideas and I do all sorts of funny stuff and I'm a lawyer, but I'm doing all these other, you know, crazy stuff. And, you know, I'm the mad woman, but when things work out, then, then, oh, but you're so smart and you're so this. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I wasn't smart two years ago. That's right. Uh, That's right. But it's, it's, it's one of those things, but then that, that attitude, those, that, that thick skin, that sort of foresight, that, that sort of vision helped me in my business endeavors you know all various ones or learn from them some of them did work out of course and you learn from it that same head you know I was to say you know being stubborn or, or strong-headed does not necessarily work in the investment arena well you know and what's 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 also there's, there's another bias that addresses that with as mm. many but one is mm. called the outcome bias yeah. we don't judge what our actions um, should have been based on the prudency of the input. I should have done this. I did this, but the outcome doesn't reflect what I hope. So based on judging it just on the outcome, we said what I did was no good. So an example I was gave, and we said, I have two young uh, girls, children. So when they were 17 and 18, they said, dad, we're going to a party and we're going to drink. I said, fine, just come home with someone who didn't drink. So they come home with someone who didn't drink and their friends went home with someone who did drink. Mm. my daughters with the person who didn't drink got into a fender bender and they ended up with a broken arm and a broken wrist in the hospital. When I went to visit them, they said, see that if you wouldn't have given us that bad advice and tell us to go home with someone who didn't drink, we would have gotten home without a vent because the guy who drank took the kids home and they didn't have an accident. Right. So the question is the outcome bias causes us to make those crazy decisions and entrepreneurs are more prone to that probably than most of us because the outcome of their success, their big bet was so positive that they now expect the outcome of everything they're going to do to be to positive. Same yeah. Positive result. And this happens regardless, even if you've had multiple. I mean, I don't know any entrepreneur who hasn't had failures. It's just not possible. Um, and they, they've had multiple, right. multiple failures. But you seem to somehow dismiss those. I mean, I learn from my failures and I do, I do try to learn from my failures. <laughs> but I, I, I feel that. A lot of the times I, I'm too quick to dismiss it. I'm, I'm like, okay, let me focus on the positives. Let me focus on, on how to move forward. And that works in the in the business arena. That works in, in as, as an entrepreneur. That doesn't work for investments because you cannot so quickly brush something under the carpet and next and move on. You have to understand why you made the decision, why it led you to the downfall. And you know, there's something that I learned from one of my mentors um, in, in the world of investing. He said, as an entrepreneur, you need to make quick decisions. You need to, you know, make how can how can you make more money? How can you expand your income? But as an investor, you need to be slow to invest and work out, okay, how, you know, how do I protect this? How do I make this decision? How can I make sure that I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, you know, running away with things? He says, you know, be quick to make money, be slow to invest. Not, he said, invest, of course, you have to do it from day one, but don't invest the way you you sort of make your business decisions. You know you should. Be That's right. Well, think think about it. Think as all of us entrepreneurs, 
what are we looking for? We're looking at our company. We have a couple of bad quarters. We have divisions. Yeah. Well, what do we want to do? We want to get rid of the bad divisions, right? We want to go, let, let's jettison the bad divisions. When you're looking at a diversified portfolio, to the economic point I made, mm-hmm. when 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 one of the components is 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 on sale, we look at it as a bad division. Let's get rid of it. Right? Yeah. And then we, we don't want, when we should be buying more of it, right? So two different things are happening, but we, we're playing we're playing um, two different games, but we just don't realize it. Yeah. Because as an entrepreneur, that's what led us to success. And again, our overconfidence is no. When there's something a bad component, you got to get rid of it. Mm. But that's the opposite of what you want to do. So, so again, as entrepreneurs, we're programmed uh, to succeed in ways that we need to often do the opposite to be programmed to succeed. You know, compounding as an investor at at, at the best rate we can stay with for the longest is very different than than keeping the the business components that have the highest returns for the next few years, so I can flip it. Very exactly. different. Yeah. Very different outlook. I mean, I was, when I was when you were talking. I was thinking about uh, about uh, cryptocurrencies, and that they they we're going through a cryptocurrency winter at the moment. Um, so you know, they they bitcoins come back up, but that's another right, thing warming up, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's I mean, it, it has it's doubled. I mean, it dipped to about sixteen thousand just a few months ago, and then now it's doubling. It's, it's more than doubled. It's sitting at thirty seven thousand the last time I checked. So it's it's done pretty well, and um, so. I think that's something else. I think you know, a lot of people have this, you know, all these new investments that come up, and so oh my god, I you know, I'm, you know, the FOMO around it or Dogecoin and you know, there should be new, you know, there these the overnight millionaires or billionaires that's or right. whatever have you, and I think there's there's a lot of FOMO that's created around the area of investment. I I mean I I am I I think cryptocurrencies are great. Um, I, you know, I I have lost some money in terms of the some of the coins. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I was one of the people who had money in, uh, you know, the one of the major, I won't say the name that she that <laughs> uh, collapsed, um, and which was quite surprising they did, but it did. But, you know, I lost a few thousand on that, not hundreds of thousands, but a few thousand on that. Um, but it's um, overall, it's, you know, it, it's it's an investment that you do long term with a small amount. Now, I have do have a do have a diversified portfolio, again, learned through the hard way. Um, so, good. you know, my cryptocurrency is a small portion of the rest of my portfolio. So even though at the moment I'm in, I would say it's negative, of, you know, there's, it's showing me that, oh, you're minus blah, blah, blah. Um, I know that eventually when it crypto, you know, when it, when it goes back into the booming time of cryptocurrency, which will probably be in the next couple of years. So I'll be back in the in the green. I'll be fine. You know, and end up doing getting money. But I'm able to see that clearly now. Had I not gone through that learning curve that I did five, six years ago when I lost a lot of money, that's when I would be. I would have because a lot of people when I, when I just sat pretty and I just thought, okay, let let's go through crypto, let's go to the crypto window. A lot of people came out, so they bought really high prices, and when it became low, they were all selling. And I thought, why? You you know, okay, some of the smaller coins, altcoins, you don't know about, you can sell, but the larger ones, you know. Um, you know, you know that it's, uh, it's because of what I talked about yeah. human nature, right? That that's yeah. it. We, you know, it, 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 I summarize that by saying from investing, I, I look at, at Bitcoin and things like that as speculating, not investing. Okay. They don't have a reliable income stream that they produce and things like that. To me, an that's investment, true. That, no, that's true. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good distinction to have, actually, because you don't know what kind of, you know, reliable income streams. Yeah, you how do you value? Them. So if you don't know how to value something, it's hard to call investment. But I don't say there's anything wrong with it. People, I always say from a behavioral standpoint, I like people to carve out a piece if they like to do that because that helps them give me the piece that needs to be protected and not interfered with right uh to help them make sure they hit their goals but what what ends up happening is is um 
when we when when we when we lose sight of the game we're playing. So in other words, everyone's called an investor. Uh, but if I'm a long term investor, I shouldn't be selling out in panic because of a five or six percent decline yeah, yeah. in a day. But if I'm a professional trader, it's my mandate to sell out in the face of a 5% decline. Mm. We're both called investors, but we're playing different games. And mm. a lot of the reasons bubbles get created is in, in the late 90s, uh, long-term investors were looking at day traders who were buying Cisco systems or, or Lucent Technologies or AOL at the beginning of the morning and looking to get out by the end of the day. And and suddenly, as those things were skyrocketing into a bubble, they, they I believe it happened because a lot of the people who were playing the long game forgot the game they're playing. They started playing the day trader game, yeah. not realizing it, not realizing that those people are at, at the end of the day. You're taking your long money and inflating the bubble. And so by not understanding the game we're playing, by by not recognizing everybody's goals and objectives are different uh, and not understanding that the person is telling you how much money they made in X is not playing your game. Mm-hmm. different risk profiles, different needs, different understandings. Um, we get caught up. And, and so it's always important to focus on what are our needs? Anybody that I've ever met who makes seven or 8% a year in a diversified portfolio compounding with dividends growing um, in the S&P at about twice inflation um, has more money than than most people that they ever met doing a lot of the other things in and out and speculating and and, and trying to find out what's the next uh nanotechnology investment that's going to make them the most money. Um, and that that's that's how Warren Buffett was asked by Jeff Bezos. Warren, you never really had a business, a real business. How did you get so wealthy just from investing? And Buffett's answer was kind of simple. He said, he said, you know, you know what I did? I, I made money slowly. Nobody likes to make money slowly. Yeah. I mean, he had t- he had compounding and time on his hand. That's what and it is. That's what yeah. he did. That's that, what that's, that's basically it, it was it's a very boring percent of his money was made from what I read after the age of 65. Yeah, 55 or 65, one of those 65, two. 65. Yeah. yeah. It was, because it was, it was it's either ninety percent or ninety-five percent, but after the age of sixty-five. It's 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 just compounding, compounding yeah. at its at its best. Um, and but he started early. That's the that's the beauty of it. He well, remember what early. I said. If someone said, "What are the two things I could do to increase my chances of having the best wealth outcome from investing? Start early and increase your time horizon." Hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay, so I think we've discussed this in, in detail. Let's wrap this up. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are thinking about investing or who are currently investing and who are scratching their heads thinking? And this would be a common thing, by the way. So I, I really want to address this because uh, I had this in, in the past. So I'm so smart. I can do so many things. Why am I such a shitty, excuse the language? Why am I so rubbish at investing? <laughs> you know, why? I, I'm sure I'm so, you know, I am so smart. I, I can do so many different things. And, you know, I, I made all these things. And for some reason, when it comes to investing, I am really poor. And I love what you said to me. I don't, I don't know if it's off camera or on camera. Somebody who's smart would is a, is going to be worse off investing than somebody who has less knowledge. Because I have my cousin um, who is a housewife and she invests in property and she invests in gold. That's the two things that she does. She doesn't do anything else. And till this day, she's never lost out money at all in anything. Well, think about this, right? So this is, goes back to how we measure loss, hmm. measure loss in terms of fluctuation of the value of what we have. Think about this. In 1980, gold had peaked at about 800 an ounce. That was yeah. that was at the, the bubble level where we're in the U.S. and infl- uh, interest rates had to go to 20% to break the back of inflation. Yeah. Gold was 800. Today, it's under 2,000. So it's it's grown about two and a half times. 
Mm. Inflation since then has grown dramatically more. Yeah. And and the stock market, the S&P was 100 then. Today, it's 4,300. So a million in gold is two and a half million. A million in stocks it's is 43. 40, 43 million. So your cousin has lost a tremendous amount of purchasing power, money. She just doesn't define it that way, right? So. Right. That's the, that's a that's a perfect real life example. But to your point, so entrepreneurs in terms of um, in terms of why is it that they invest like rubbish? To your I'll use your second term, not the first term. Although I like the first term, I just don't know what's what's appropriate. So um, so so the reason is is that um, investing successfully is one part intellect, what we know, and those guys and women who are entrepreneurs think they know a lot more than we all know. Yes, hundred percent. Right. And and number two, um, it, it's one percent what we know or, or intellect. It's ninety nine percent what we do or temperament. Mm. And so because entrepreneurs think they know a lot more than they know and that it's translatable to anything they do to, to lead to success. And because um, their temperament is such that they're overconfident and can't control their action, <laughs> their instinct of what they want to do, even though it's against maybe for investing what they should do. Those two things work together, believing that what they know and how much they know will be successful um, elements of investing, and then not understanding that their overconfidence will cause them to overconcentrate and not stay with their investments for the long haul the way they need to to compound. That's that that's the reason that entrepreneurs, those two reasons are are key reasons entrepreneurs tend not to be good investors. That's a great, great answer. So I'm not saying that this puts uh, entrepreneurs off the hook, but at least it gives you an understanding as the individuals and those who are listening to us, especially me, in terms of why I made the mistakes that I made and why am I good at business, but not necessarily investing, even though I'm good at maths, I'm good at numbers and I'm good with business. That's but- right. Yeah, That's but it's, right. it doesn't necessarily translate into being a good investor, especially when money is involved and it's your money. <laughs> so- That's that's right, and and there there are you know there are um, we we can't reconcile those things oftentimes, right? We can't accept the fact that I'm so smart and I know so much. But the other thing that I'll point out for entrepreneurs is, without us meaning to be, we tend to be selfish. So. I coined a phrase that I, I have to figure out how to try to get into the behavioral finance vernacular, but I call it the illusion of predictive value. And entrepreneurs mm-hmm. suffer from that illusion. I've seen more than, than than most of us, and we all do. So you ever hear someone say, I'm investing in this because I think X, Y, Z is going to happen and da, 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 da. Yeah. So, we, so having that, that because we believe that's going to be the outcome, that the actual outcome is somehow going to reflect our belief, which is one of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of beliefs, and then we'll make a decision based on that belief. I call that the illusion that of predictive value, that our belief has predictive value. Um, and so when we act on that, um, we, the entrepreneur will make a, a big mistake, right? Because they're always going to believe that they know what's going to happen and that, that the decision they're going to premise on that knowledge is going to lead them to a good result. But the other thing I find uh, is even if there is an entrepreneur who somehow can overcome all these biases behaviorally on their own and not have overconfidence interfere with their investing – and they can control all these things. What they what they don't realize if they have a family, they're now leaving their family someday because they're not they're not immortal, even though we all tend to think we might be with a, a set of investments that need special attention that yeah. the family doesn't have the skill set to do. And they've never really yeah. helped the family set up a 
an investment in in all of human ingenuity and in, in stocks broadly, like the S and P, that don't require a lot of help to do really well over time in a really safe way. Diversified exposure to all of the great things ahead uh, um, in, in terms of innovation, and and they don't think that way because they they don't think of the. So that's another reason why entrepreneurs really ought to take sometimes a step back and say. Even if I think I can do a lot of these things, which I can as an investor, how am I protecting my family? Mm, that's a great way to end. Um, this is such a fascinating. We can carry on talking for forever. It's such a fascinating topic. <laughs> well, I um, really enjoyed it, and I and I appreciate your um, your questions and and the whole the whole approach of the podcast. Really, thank you so much, John. Thank you so much. So, just tell us how can we connect with you? How can we find you on the internet? So great. So you can go to uh, Fusion Family Wealth. Dot com. That's our website. And all of our contact information and, and uh, a full description of our philosophy and, and approach is uh, is available there. Wonderful. Now, if you're listening to us on the podcast, then the link that Jonathan just mentioned and his other links will be in the show notes. And if you're watching on YouTube and down below in the description section, we'll have all the links for him to go check him out. And as we discussed on Friday Feature, whether in or out of the US, he might be able to help you even if you're out of the US. Do reach out to him and his team and see how he can support you with your wealth management. Thank you. And on that note, thank you so much, Jonathan, for such a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Gal. It's really a pleasure. And thank you for listening to me and Jonathan today talking on and on about wealth management, especially for entrepreneurs. Um, I will be back with another amazing guest on another Money Talkie segment, finding out how you and I can build a better business and a better life. Until the next time, this is Girl Khan signing off. Take care and bye for now. If you want to learn more about my energy tools and mindset strategies, then please visit my website, www.gulkhan.com. And if you want to take part in our five-day abundance mindset makeover workshop, where I deep dive into energy tools for abundance, then please go to www.abundancemindsetmakeover.com and register. I look forward to being your mentor in the next workshop. And if you want to learn about the spiritual laws of money, then go and get my book, Laws of Money, from www.lawsofmoney.com. Until the next time we meet, this is Girl Khan signing off. Take care and bye for now.